0: I have always been an adventurer, a thrill seeker. The basis of my life is fairly stable. I have a permanent job as a financial consultant for an advertising agency and can therefore afford a small apartment in Manhattan. Perhaps because of my safe existence, I have always felt a strong urge to travel to relatively unknown destinations. When it comes to love and lust, I also look for challenges. I often date men my friends warn me about. Unsavory types with tough friends, addictions, or dark hobbies, even. I dated a tattoo artist once and lost one to heroin. Not the best boyfriend material, I can tell you that. But interesting, nonetheless. But no matter how exciting it may be to allow a bad boy into my mundane life for a while, nothing satisfies my hunger for adventure more than a journey into the unknown. I used to work through the holidays so I could leave my job for a few weeks every year. My fifth intercontinental flight was headed to Hanoi, Vietnam. Back then, in the mid-90s, it was still a relatively unusual destination, especially for Americans. For obvious reasons, of course. My plan was to stay with the locals in some small villages up north, but I would also go on a five-day hike through the North Vietnamese highlands on my own. I did some research on a hiking trail that was called the Northern Trail by the few American backpackers who had seen it. Even my doctor thought I was crazy when I told her about my plans. She gave me some emergency malaria cures for free. Many of my friends also thought it was a crazy idea to go to a country which might still be unfriendly to people from the States. And then there was the unpredictable weather in the mountains. But despite everybody's concern, I was looking forward to my trip. I was young, stubborn, and wanted to be different. Traveling was my way to escape the office life for a bit. I started traveling after my mom died, and for me it was a perfect way to cope with her death. I wasn't really on good terms with my sister at the time so there wasn't really someone in my immediate surroundings to talk to who'd known my mom. While traveling, I could stop thinking about her for a bit, because traveling kind of forces you to be in the moment. I visited Vietnam in 1999, one year after the first commercial flight from America landed in Hanoi. The northern part of the country has become popular among backpackers and influencers alike since then. In 1999, however... Vietnam was still a destination chosen exclusively by adventurous types, travelers who were up for a challenge. I was such a type and thought myself prepared for the dangers of the Vietnamese jungle and the awkwardness of not being able to communicate in English. In my backpack were malaria tablets, ORS packs against dehydration in case of sickness, and I even bought a water freshener. But I could not have prepared in any way. For the danger that awaited me, I boarded the plane in good spirits. After traveling through the pristine deserts of Kyrgyzstan and ice cold Mongolia, Vietnam was a country where the elements were relatively mild. I arrived in Hanoi and, after recovering from my jet lag for two nights in the busy city center of the Vietnamese capital, I took a local bus to the north. My little backpack wrapped tightly in a plastic bag that I would often need to keep it dry during the night. I got out in a small village and stayed with a sweet family for a night. I was already amazed by there where the locals tied almost everything on their scooters, from cattle to complete market stalls. Although I had done a lot of research into the dangers that might be lurking in the green mountains of Vietnam, I was mainly surprised by the weather. The 14 degrees felt much colder due to the moist mountain air, and I was immediately concerned about the lack of warm clothing in my backpack. But hey, this sort of thing was what I had come for. The inconvenience and the adjustments and the ingenuity required to overcome the setbacks. It was 99, which meant that I didn't have a cell phone to help me. But I welcomed the feeling of being unreachable, and enjoyed having to communicate using just my hands and my little translation book. The locals in the villages I passed were so remote that they could only speak Vietnamese. After spending two evenings with a friendly family in a farming village near Sapa, I felt it was time to distance myself even further from society. Although it was rainier than was ideal, I decided to start hiking the Northern Trail two days earlier than I initially had planned. It turned out that there was another backpacker in the village, Something I wasn’t too happy about at first. I had come to this corner of the world to avoid Western people after all. But when I actually met the young woman, my envy disappeared quickly. Her name was Nicole, a German idealist who did trekking tours beside her work for multiple NGOs in Southeast Asia. We clicked immediately and ate a delicious meal together that the locals called "Ba me." a sandwich that was filled with delicious hot meat that the owner of our homestay had prepared for us. Although our background was completely different, I noticed that Nicole and I had many similarities, a lust for life and the strong feeling that discomfort was always way better than boredom. Nicole said that she felt only truly alive when she was traveling. I asked her if she wanted to get breakfast the next morning before we would part ways, and she said she'd love to. That morning, however... She wasn't there. I thought it was odd, since she seemed genuine when she told me she would be there, but I was too excited for my trip to really be bothered by it. I brushed it off by thinking maybe she'd overslept or had changed her mind. I took a bus that was so old I thought it could fall apart at any minute, to an even remoter part of Vietnam. I was so close to the border now that I might even see China if the weather would clear up. It was still drizzling and windy, and I could only hope it would stop anytime soon. At the final stop of the village, I asked around and found the only guy owning a motorcycle who was willing to take me to the northern trail for a small fee. It was only a short drive, but I could feel the air getting cooler as we went up. At some point, he took my hands and put them around his waist. I immediately thought it was a sexual thing, but then I realized it was because he was worried I might fall off because of the steepness. We drove a mile or so over a rocky path, which was so rough I might as well have walked. After I thanked him and watched him drive away, I finally felt that adrenaline I had come all this way for. I was completely on my own now. My only companions were my map and the small tent in my backpack. The trail would take me about five days to complete. Five full days in the rain and cold. A full work week with almost no human interaction— Nothing than the grassy land and the beautiful spiky mountain slopes to gaze upon. I started marching and felt the mushy ground underneath my feet. That first day, the scenery was just... Breathtaking. Sometimes I just stood in awe of the rocky mountains for a minute. Feeling small in their enormous presence. That night, my first obstacle presented itself in the form of a thick mist. It came up fast, almost out of thin air you might say and i felt discouraged by its sight my feet were already sore and i could feel a blister coming up so stopping every 10 minutes to make sure i was still on the right track wasn't something i was looking forward to so i decided to just give in to the mist and set up my tent i would make up for the lost miles the next day by the time i found a suitable place for my tent the mist was so thick you could hardly see further than 1 feet It was a surreal experience to me. Mist was common in New York, but... but would be not much more than a gloomy filter cloaking the city. Now, my sight was so limited. It was almost scary. I could barely see a thing, but I knew this was a common occurrence in higher country. So, despite my discomfort, I tried to think of it as a fascinating natural phenomenon. When I'd put up my tent, I fell asleep right away. I didn't even bother taking off my clothes. But in the middle of the night, I suddenly woke up. I couldn't tell what it was, but somehow I felt a presence near me. Maybe it was an animal, I thought right away. But there were not much animals in this part of Vietnam. It couldn't have been a Sika deer, since most of them had gone extinct in Vietnam for a while now. I'd read that in a travel book while on the plane. I decided to just ignore that gnawing feeling because there was not much I could do. The second day, the mist had partly cleared up, but it was still impossible to see far. The impressive mountain peaks I had enjoyed the day before were invisible to me now. A weird thought, I said to myself, to know that they are there, but to not be able to see them. Right around noon... After I sat down to gulp down some water and prepare myself a simple meal on the small gas heater I brought, something startled me so bad I almost dropped my can of chickpeas. In the distance, between two mountain slopes, I noticed a figure. A human figure. It was so far away that I could only see its shape. I guessed it was a man because of his clothing. He was all alone, just standing there ominously between the big mountains i guessed it was a farmer at first but the figure didn't have any sheep or goats around him weird maybe it was some local looking for some special route or something hell if i knew after i stared at him for a while i decided to let him know that i saw him i waved with my hands but there was no response the man just stood there as if he was waiting for something. I noticed he carried something in his hands, but I couldn't tell what. I suddenly got the strange feeling that I wasn't welcome here, that I came at a very wrong time. It was an intuition and I pushed it away by telling myself everything was fine. I was overreacting. Maybe the cold was getting to me. I just needed to keep on going. I just kept on walking, not paying attention to the man anymore, not looking back. After two hours of walking, I stopped to get a granola bar. And I saw him again. I spotted him in the distance, roughly as far away as he had been before, 10 yards maybe. Close enough to make me feel uncomfortable, but far enough to not be recognizable. This wasn't a coincidence. It seemed like he was actually watching me. He must have followed me all this way. I called out to him then. The sound traveled pretty far. It echoed back at me. He didn't reply. There was just the sound of wind. He just kept standing there, his features not recognizable in the thickening fog. I turned around and started walking slightly faster now as to maybe lose the man, but I had a pack and he had not. Half an hour later, I took a shit behind some rocks and I felt so uncomfortable I could hardly do it, knowing this creep was following me around. I wish he would just come closer so I would know what his game was, but the entire day he stayed at a safe but visible distance, fully aware of the fact that I had noticed his presence. I constantly tried to push the thought of the man out of my mind, but it was hard. Every time I stopped and looked behind me, he was there. Maybe he was just curious and wondering where I was going. They don't get a lot of visitors in these parts, I said to myself, thinking about this one time in Mongolia when some local kids had followed me around all day. They'd laughed at the way I ate and even peeked when I took a bath. But those were just curious kids. Kids were harmless. This was a man. He must go away to eat something or sleep at some point, I told myself, in order to calm my nerves. Then I'll continue walking so he'll lose me. But this landscape was wide and vast. There were the occasional trees, but no real forest to disappear into. So I just prayed that he would leave at some point. In the evening, it was dark so fast that I couldn't really tell if the man was still following me. I just put up my tent and hoped he went back to wherever he had come from. But one thought kept returning to me. The thought of him robbing me, or worse. I had brought a pocket knife, mainly for opening cans, but now I didn't know what I would use it for. I put it in my pocket, which made me feel a little bit safer. When I entered my tent, I listened real closely. It was so dark and silent it gave me the creeps. I'm not a religious person, but I prayed this man had gone home. But some part of me knew he was probably still outside. I was all alone in this unknown territory. I felt vulnerable and scared. I clutched the knife in my fist and laid down, my clothes still on. Somehow, despite my fear, I drifted away, but a sound woke me up. It was the sound of broken sticks. I was surprised by my own reflexes. I grabbed my flashlight and opened the knife I was still holding, but before I could open the tent, I heard the sound of plastic being torn. Some sharp object cut through the front of the tent. In panic, I screamed. My throat gave away a shrill and high-pitched scream that didn't seem to come from me but from some primal creature deep inside myself. I shone my flashlight in front of me and I saw that it was a scythe that was destroying my tent. An old-fashioned, moon-shaped scythe. Just like the one the Soviet Union used on their flags. I screamed again and instinctively backed away from the entrance. I started cutting the back of the tent, needing to get out. But just before I cut a hole big enough for me to fit through, he was inside. In the light of the flashlight, I saw his face. It was a Vietnamese face, a regular face, only the eyes were different. These were not the warm, dark eyes I'd seen before. These eyes were cold and crazed with anger, intent on murder. He held his scythe in front of him now, and in my state of panic, I swung my knife in his direction. I missed, but he backed away. It gave me time to grab my pack, and I bolted away from there as fast as I could. It was so dark out I could barely see a thing, but I just started running. Luckily, the maniac was stuck inside the tent somehow, which gave me time to run away. Stumbling, I ran as fast as I could to a rock where I hid behind. I could just see the remains of my tent in the pale moonlight, and I just waited to see what he was going to do. I made sure to watch my surroundings in case he would sneak up on me, but my spot felt relatively safe because I had a vantage point. I could look over the place where I'd set up my tent. And even if he would come up the hill, I would know pretty soon. After ten minutes of silence and darkness, nothing but the sound of the howling wind, I saw him. My night vision was well adjusted to the dark by now. As if he came out of nowhere, I saw him, coming out of some bushes. He was fast. Faster than I was because of my backpack I was still clutching against my body. I thought of leaving it, but somehow I knew that that would mean certain death. I was in the middle of nowhere, miles away from civilization. The proper clothing and food was in my pack. So I held onto it, hearing his footsteps coming closer and closer to me. At some point I knew he was going to get me, so I just turned around. He was close, even closer than I would have guessed, but I surprised him. He stopped too. So here we stood, predator and prey looking right at each other. I felt my heart pounding, I didn't feel much else anymore. The pain in my feet and hips were completely absolved by all that adrenaline. He had stopped too, standing wide, his left hand still holding that horrible scythe that shimmered in the darkness, like it was made out of light. Its shape looked monstrous to me, like it wasn't a simple worker's tool, but a claw made for killing. The scariest part, however, was his face. Despite everything, he still looked calm. Calculating, you might say. It was not the face of a monster, no. It was just a regular, Vietnamese face. One that could have belonged to anyone. He didn't look like some deranged killer. But every cell in my brain told me he was determined to kill me. Kill me for sport. Maybe even mutilate my corpse. I just felt it. Like I'd felt his presence that first day. But I decided that moment I wasn't going to let him. I didn't go through all these hard times just to get used and slaughtered in some remote hill in Vietnam. I wasn't going to end like all those young soldiers who died for nothing here. So I ran toward him, the knife in front of me, the backpack protecting my body. He didn't see that coming, but he reacted quickly. He brought down his scythe, but he only hit my pack. I pushed myself against him, the pack protecting my body. I could feel him resisting, and with his arms, he grabbed my pack. That's what I was hoping for. I sliced at his right arm, the one that was still holding the scythe. I sliced like I was mad. I heard him scream now, and he backed off. I heard the scythe fall down with the sound of metal against rock, like when you drop a pan on the tiles. I swung the backpack and I just ran. I ran and ran till my feet couldn't anymore. I could feel the wet, moist and blood soaking my shoes, probably coming from the blisters that had formed there the previous day and were now all open. I was desperate to use my flashlight but forced myself not to use it since it could give away my location. So I just ran, for hours not giving myself pause. When it felt like my lungs were on fire, I let myself slide down a slope and hid behind some bushes. Only then did I take a look at the knife. It was completely covered in dark syrup. Not just the blade, but the entire thing. Even my hand was covered in it. That gave me some hope. I had hurt him. I had hurt the son of a bitch real good, but after that... The tears came. I got lucky. Two Vietnamese women found me only a few hours later. They had seen me stumbling, moving on my last legs. I later learned they were collecting wood and thought I was a lost traveler. They brought me to their village where they fed me and put me on a bus back to Hanoi. God bless their souls. I don't know if I would have survived without the help of those two women, but even on the bus, I couldn't get warm. My feet were bleeding and my head hurt so bad I couldn't think straight, but at least I was getting out of this forsaken place. I knew it was irrational, but at every stop, I was terrified that that monster of a man would get on the bus, ready to finish the job. But of course, he didn't. In Hanoi, I took a cab to the police station, where a friendly officer took me in. At first, he didn't seem to believe my story. His English was terrible, but he immediately took me more seriously when I showed him the bloody knife. After I told him the entire story for the second time, something seemed to click in his head, right after I mentioned the village where I had stayed the night and met Nicole. He knew the area, it seemed. I was completely exhausted, but the officer said I unfortunately couldn't go yet. He needed a written statement, too, but he told me I should sleep for a few hours first. I just wanted to go home, but I knew I couldn't, so I just accepted his offer and laid down on the bed in a tiny cell. I felt safe enough to sleep there, since I was surrounded by police. When I woke up, he wrote down my statement and put all my clothes and the knife into evidence bags. He provided me with some new clothing and sent me to the American Embassy, where I received an emergency passport and a proper meal. At the Embassy, they informed me that other authorities had been contacted already and that I was free to go now, as long as I would be available for contact after I got back to the States. Even before the plane took off the Vietnamese police had started a massive manhunt already. I just stared outside, feeling completely drained of all energy, but thankful to be alive. When I returned to my apartment in Manhattan, I was more exhausted than ever. I was always tired after my travels, but also satisfied Now it seemed as if the fear had gotten into my bones and robbed me of all lust for life. The only thing I wanted was to hide under my warm sheets, as I had once done as a little girl during thunderstorms. At home, I took a hot 30-minute shower and then crawled into bed. Because sleep did not come, I just stared out my window and listened to the rain ticking on the window. A sound that I had always experienced as pleasant. But now, it frightened me. It reminded me of the way the rain had hit the canvas of my tent. Despite the late hour, I saw the people of New York rushing through the streets, their umbrellas protecting them against the leaking sky. Only when I turned off the light did I see the red light on my answering machine, I stood up and clicked the button. A series of 44 missed calls from about 15 different numbers. I called my sister. She started crying as soon as she heard my voice. I asked her to come over. And hours later, we held each other's arms. She knew more than I knew, so we didn't even have to talk about it. We just hugged. The next day, I spent about five hours reassuring everyone who was worried about me. Several times that day, I burst into tears between the phone calls, not only because I only now realized how much love I had taken for granted, but also because I knew that I had been closer to death than I dared to admit. In the evening, I received a phone call that I could be summoned for an interrogation that would be used by... Vietnamese detectives. A gentleman from the Vietnamese embassy would contact me. Only the next day did I dare to watch the news, where an item of just two minutes was spent on the killer. Nothing was clear about a possible motive, only that the killer was still on the run. It was two weeks and three therapist appointments later that I finally dared to read the papers. My ex had kept them all and put them in a leather map, as some freaky, ominous trophy. I guess he was excited to know somebody who was part of such a gruesome historical event. That made him a small extra in the story, too. A good story for parties, I guess. Still, I was glad he had kept everything, because now I could read all the developments on the case in chronological order. He left me alone with a cup of tea while I browsed through the sensational news articles commenting on something that had already felt like a horrible dream. But these cutout articles were proof that it had actually happened. The Vietnamese authorities had found him rather quickly. They must have realized how bad this publicity was for the slowly upcoming tourist industry of Vietnam. The guy that had stalked me through the mountains turned out to be a veteran from the Vietnam War. He lost his dad during a U.S. bombing, and not a year later, South Vietnamese soldiers had tortured and murdered his mom and brother. It made me feel bad for the guy. It really did. But then I read about Nicole. He had tried to slit her throat while she was sleeping, but she had put up a fight. But in the end, he got her anyway. I felt empty inside after reading about the gruesome details of her death. She was such a kind-hearted person. I kind of wished he had taken me instead of her. But he didn't. I was here. Back in New York. His killing spree had started years ago. Nicole was his final and seventh victim. They only connected the murders because he got too greedy. His list contained all sorts of tourists, all from Western countries, mostly female. His motives were carefully explained through the traumatic events that shaped this man. But personally, I doubt if that solves everything. I think that he was just a sick man. A man that was born to kill. But maybe the papers are right. Maybe there was a reason for all of this merciless killing. Maybe it was vengeance on those western countries that had taken so much from him. Maybe a country whose grassy hills are soaked in so much blood can never really recover. Before the Americans there were the French and before that the Cambodians and so on. Vietnam has known more bloodshed than one can imagine. I just hope the people can recover, you know? Maybe it is their time to prosper now. Maybe that killer was just an unjust retribution of what my country did to those poor people. A painful scar. My next holiday, I'll spend two weeks at the beach in Montauk with my sister. We grew closer through this. She helps me a lot. I always perceived her as boring, but now I can see that I was mistaken. I'm excited for the beach, but I don't want to travel farther. I just can't. Traveling will never be the same for me, but at least I'm here to say it.